Hello everyone. Toward Inclusive Excellence is excited to share another great interview with you with an outstanding scholar in honor of Black Music Month. I'm Alexia Hudson Ward, Editor-in-Chief of Toward Inclusive Excellence. This episode is a conversation with Dr. Federa Hadley, an ethnomusicology professor in the Department of Music History at the Juilliard School. Her core research considers how people of African descent use music genres to construct and maintain community. Dr. Hadley earned an undergraduate degree from Florida A&M University, a Master's of Art in African-American Studies from Clark Atlanta University, and a PhD in Ethnomusicology from Indiana University. Among her many exciting projects are exploring how HBCU musical legacies influence the broader cultural landscape and illuminating the life of Shirley Graham Du Bois, a hidden musical figure who left a remarkable legacy in Ghana and was the second wife of scholar and intellectual W.E.B. Du Bois. Now on to our conversation with Dr. Federa Hadley. Federa, thank you so much for joining us for what I know is going to be a great conversation. Indeed. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. And and for those who are listening, you can't see what Federa and I have on in terms of our background um, and what I'm wearing today for a shirt. But for those who will view this podcast on YouTube, we literally did not plan to both wear orange. You know, but it just, it just worked, it Great just worked itself out. Great minds think alike. Indeed, indeed. A really uplifting and, and fun color. So thank you again. So my first question to you is, you know, what influenced your decision to pursue and ultimately earn a doctorate degree in ethnomusicology? That's such a great question. And there are two parts to that answer. The first part came when I was very young, not very young, but I was like a teenager. My mom is a retired English literature professor, so I grew up in a house of books. Also, she was a church musician, so music as well. So those, the, I, the world of ideas and the world of music have always coexisted in my life. And my mom took me to a book sale, like a used book sale, and I found a copy of a book called Blues People by Leroy Jones, later mm. Mary Baraka. And I read it ravenously. And and that was a turning point for me because I didn't know that people wrote about Black music, this world that I lived in in church with my friends and all of this. I didn't know that people were thinking about it and theorizing about it in that way. Um, and so that stuck with me. I didn't know the word ethnomusicology yet, but that planted a seed in my mind, again, my mom as an English professor. So we had all these books in the house um, from the Harlem Renaissance, from the Black Arts Movement. And so much of the poetry of the Black Arts Movement, especially, was musical. The poetry of Haki Madhubuti, Nikki Giovanni, Leroy Jones, all of these people, Sonia Sanchez. It just had this real musical quality to me. Um, and so that sort of stayed with me as well. 
And then later, I did a master's degree at Clark Atlanta University in African-American studies. And when you go into cultural studies, that can mean any number of things. That can mean people who are interested in health disparities, criminal justice reform, education. Um, and I realized then, while all of those things are really important, the one piece I felt in, compelled to lean further into, um, and I felt equipped to lean further into, was music. Like, mm. really thinking about Black music, what that meant, why I find it so evocative and powerful, why it feels like this seminal thread in my life. And while I was yes. working on my master's degree, I talked to one of my old professors from FAMU, Florida a where I went to undergrad, um, Dr. Der Derek Williams. And he's, he was like, you sound like you want to be an ethnomusicologist. That was the first time I heard the word. I'm out of undergrad in graduate school. And he was the first person to mention that word to me. And then he told me that there was a scholar named Portia Maltby, um, who was also a Black woman from Florida, just like I am, who is like the a preeminent scholar in ethnomusicology and African-American music. Um, yes. And then I went and I stalked her and everything that she ever wrote. And I was like, it was like somebody just opened up this glorious new world to me of what? scholarship could be and what possibilities existed. And very long story short, fortunately, I ended up, she was, um, she's now Professor Emerita at Indiana University. So long story short, I ended up studying with her as my advisor at Indiana University. Wow. Wow. What a great story, you know, and shout out to your mother, you know, from an English literature major and just knowing how having that type of material in the household can plant seeds of potential mm -hmm. and also shout out to the professor, you know, mm -hmm. that said to you, how about this? You know, cause mm -hmm. I had a similar story with a, a faculty member, African-American woman historian. Um, when I was at Temple university said, would you ever consider library science? You know, and I was like, what's that? You know, so I really appreciate and can relate to that story. And for those who don't know what exactly ethnomusicology is or what particularly that discipline is, could you give us an overview of what exactly um, the discipline entails? Sure. Ethnomusicology is the study of music as culture, how we do music, um, how music helps us to understand who we are as individuals, as groups. That group can be a family, that group can be a culture, it can be a generation. It can be a church or a synagogue. It can be a neighborhood. There's so many different ways to think about who the group is. It isn't only about cultural or racial lines, but really um, thinking about who we are musically using technology on TikTok. These are the kinds of questions that ethnomusicologists are really interested in. The idea of music as social practice, something that we generally do together or for each other in some kind of way. We're trying to always just think about why is it compelling? Why is it meaningful to the people who are doing it? If you think about it, making music is a completely, you know, on one level, extraneous thing that, that humans do. We don't need to do it to live like we do. We need to eat. We need to sleep and all of that. But we kind of do need to do it to live. Uh, there is something that we would identify as musical. And just about every culture, every segment of the world and of society. So 
So why mm-hmm. do humans feel so compelled to engage in musical activity? And what does that say to us? Um, I think we're always, as ethnomusicologists, kind of nodding towards the universal, but really grounded in the specific. And so uh, we like to be like anthropologists and go out and do field work and hang out and make music with the folk and all of that. Um, and we do historical research. We do archival research. We do digital uh, ethnography, all of those things. Um, and so very often the ethnomusicologist at a university is teaching courses on world music or non-Western music very often. Um, but yeah, that's kind of what we do in a nutshell. Great. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. That was really um, incredible, an incredible review of what I think is such a dynamic and interesting field and interesting profession. And so thank you so much. So some of your research, Federa, centers upon the diverse musical legacies and impacts of historically Black colleges and universities, which are often referred to as HBCUs. So would you discuss your research with our audience and describe how HBCUs musical legacies influence the broader cultural landscape? Sure. Um, I feel like every answer to my question somehow goes back to my childhood, um, (laughs) which is to say that I am who I've always been. But um, again, there are two parts to this answer. I come from a family that was profoundly shaped by Black colleges and HBCUs. My parents met an HBCU at Florida A&M University. Um, my mother was a professor there. My father had been an administrator there. My grandparents on my father's side got an award for putting so many children through FAMU. When I graduated, he got a, my grandfather got another award for putting so many grandchildren through FAMU. Most of my Black teachers, Girl Scout leaders were all Black college grads growing up in Florida. And so these are institutions that have been in my life always. Um, suffice it to say. And I also grew up in a house where if the Fish Jubilee Singers or the Howard University Concert Choir was coming to town, we were going to go hear them sing Negro spirituals. We were going to do that. But we also were going to go see the marching bands that came to town. Florida a and I'm biased. We have the best marching band. <laughs> when they came to town, we would go see them as well. And so I had all these experiences. HBCUs in a lot of ways are just have been um, a part of the oxygen in my life. I'm a two-time HBCU alum, undergrad, and master's degree. But it wasn't until I got to Oberlin, where you and I met, and I was teaching a course um, on African-American music, and I really wanted to understand the legacy of Black graduates from Oberlin's conservatory, what they had contributed to the world in the early, late 19th, early 20th century. And I realized that so much of Black music incubated on historically Black college campuses. And so we would not have the Negro spirituals if it hadn't been for those teenagers, those very young people who made up the Fish Jubilee Singers. We would not have that entire repertoire of music. Or one time I was watching a fraternity do their new member presentation. I realized the song that they were singing is actually a work song. And I was like, this is a historical genre of music that folks are singing on the yard. And so HBCUs represent really important areas of preservation of Black music, um, as well as innovation in Black music. You have so many, um, two of of James Brown's closest musical collaborators, Matthew Parker and Fred Wesley, 
are HBCU alums. Fred Wesley graduated from Alabama A&M and I think Maceo Parker from North Carolina A&T. And so these, these campuses, which I frame as important islands of refuge for young Black people where racism doesn't have to be, is not generally the predominant thing with which they need to be concerned because the ecosystem itself is predominantly Black. The professors, the janitors, the administrators, the students. The music then shows us what is possible when these young Black people and their teachers come together um, on these islands of refuge, these havens. I always say HBCUs are havens, not heavens, but they're havens. And look at the full range of musical practice that happens on these campuses. Everything from the parties to the spirituals to the hymns that fraternities and sororities sing to uh, all of it is imbued with this community ethos that enriches the music both on those campuses and beyond those campuses. And so I wanted I am writing a text that just points us towards that. There's a tremendous amount of research that needs to be done, but I just want to orient us towards the fact that when we see that a composer taught at an HBCU or graduated from an HBCU, the great Leontine Price is an HBCU grad, that isn't a footnote. That is a pivotal juncture where usually foundational musical training, exposure, uh, community bonding happens and those rituals, those music filter out into the broader Black community and into American music. Yes, thank you so much for that. I remember you reflecting on some of this when I was viewing your remarks in the PBS special in which you were interviewed by Henry Louis Gates, um, The Black Church, mm-hmm. and how the HBCU's imprints you know, there, there's a, it's a corollary between what has happened in that educational experience and ultimately the musical DNA that now infuses the country. And you raise a really important point that I want to expand upon, um, Federa, around the footprint of the HBCU and it not kind of being a footnote, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, and really recontextualizing that you know, for our listeners, you know, and others to think about the ways in which I think, frankly, HBCUs have been historically marginalized um, within this nation. And yet, you know, look at the product, look at the ways in which these institutions have not only contributed to every profession, you know, Mm -hmm. in a really profound way, but is really a part of the cultural ecosystem of this nation. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little more about that? Yes, HBCUs, the majority of them are founded in the late 19th century during the era of Reconstruction, although you have Cheney, which was founded in the 1830s, and you have some founded in the 20th century. The bulk come 1866 up through the 1890s. And, you know, at the core, there's segregationist projects. Um, A lot of them are because A lot of them are founded by white religious institutions and white benefactors who believe that Black people, newly emancipated Black people, should have some type of education, but not go to the colleges we already had, uh, which were admitting white students. Notable exception being an Oberlin College founded in 1833. But 
Black people kind of don't care. They're clamoring for education. They understand the power of education and how they can transform one's life, right? And so over the 150 year plus that we've had them, um, they have become institutions that Black people have embraced as their own, right? Um, they see them as um, institutions that have made life possible for them. My grandparents, none of my grandparents had a high school diploma. Most of them didn't finish elementary school, but the fact that they could go, my parents could go to a historically Black college and my aunts and uncles transformed the trajectory of our family. And so you can't overstate what access to education has done for so many Black Americans. And even now in the 21st century, the percentage of Black college students who go to HBCUs is something in the single digits, maybe seven or eight percent. Yet HBCUs still, and there's over a hundred of these schools still today, um, HBCUs still overproduce the number of Black teachers, Black pharmacists, Black PhDs, Black doctors, Black lawyers, Black engineers, um, any of these professional ranks to which one looks. HBCUs have disproportionately contributed graduates into those ranks. And what I think that points to are all of the intangible things that happen on these campuses for young Black people. Um, Over and over again, you hear stories of young Black people who barely got into college, whether it's Tougaloo or Bethune-Cookman or Howard or wherever, but what was imparted into them and what was made possible for them shifted the trajectory of their life. And now they're going to graduate school. Now they're a teacher in an elementary school. And so I think we should never uh, take for granted the the ongoing existence of HBCUs. Because to me, it's kind of miraculous that we still have them. Um, yes. Because they yes. have been such a powerful engine of creating Black community, Black um, economic stability, Black professional rank. And it must be said that HBCUs continue and have, since their inception, fought threats of um being closed, being destroyed, uh, physical violence, being chronically underfunded. Forbes ran a story in the last year or so talking about how like North Carolina A&T has been underfunded by billions, right? right compared right. to their peer yes. institution in the state. Yet and still, North Carolina A&T is one of our most important pipelines for Black engineers and Black graduates in the state of North Carolina. And so um, in this moment, especially since the, the deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, HBCUs have been a beneficiary of, you know, a lot of this money that is suddenly now flying around. Um, but I think we should always be vigilant about protecting and advocating uh, for the uh, going concern of historically Black colleges. Yes, particularly when we think about higher education's role in shaping definitions of citizenry in shaping what is culture and Mm -hmm. how culture is illuminated and celebrated, right? Like we cannot ever take our attention off of the fact that this important, you know, gathering of institutions have been so principal in the forward movement of a lot of the activities of this nation and, and is really a part of the nation's DNA. 
you know, so I, I appreciate that. And it is with appreciation that you have, you know, really iterated on that for us. Thank you. So, Fader, I want to pivot a little bit about one of your very interesting transatlantic research projects. And I know that it entails studying and illuminating the life of Shirley Graham Du Bois, who I consider to be a phenomenal musical hidden figure. And so in what ways did archives and libraries play a critical role in fostering your work on Shirley Graham Du Bois? You may not know this about me, but I'm the biggest fan of archivists, archives, and libraries. I love. Doing I would have this. never had. I would have never had guessed that. You know, just <laughs> it totally went over my head. <laughs> I love them. I love. I feel like whenever I get to go in the archive, it's like going on a treasure hunt, and you find all of these things that you were looking for, and all of these jewels that you didn't know that you were looking for. Um, and so let me say that I, I am a huge fan of digging through archives, going to archives. And so with Shirley Graham Du Bois, that also goes back to Oberlin, where um, in preparing that lecture about late 19th and early 20th century Oberlin graduates, I knew her name and I knew that she had gone to Oberlin, but I didn't know the breadth and scope of her incredible life, right? Um, And it was in the archive where I pulled her student file and I began learning about her time at Oberlin. And she was an older student when she came to Oberlin. She had already divorced her husband and had two children and studied in Paris and lived life before she came to Oberlin. But it's at Oberlin where she writes her 1932 opera, Tom Tom. Right. And I start piecing together like, wait a minute, there is so much here to know about this woman. And I felt robbed because no one at Oberlin or anywhere else had told me about this exceptional woman who in her one lifetime had been an activist, a biographer, a composer. She had worked with the NAACP, a playwright an internationalist, a confidant of Kwame Nkrumah, the first president of Ghana. She lived in Egypt. Like she just, her life felt very cinematic to me. And I got the first glimpses of that at Oberlin where I I looked in in the archive and the archivist's name, his name is Ken and I'm forgetting Yeah, Ken Grossi. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) He was so generous and just like pulling things for me and all of that. Um, And so I got glimpses of this woman and Oberlin in the archive also had the master's thesis that she wrote at Oberlin um, called Africanisms in Modern Music, where she is tracing these retentions from uh, musical retentions from North Africa and West Africa in Carmen, the opera Carmen by Bizet. She's looking at it in jazz. She's looking at it in the symphonies of Florence Price, William Dawson, and William Grant Still, all who had major orchestral premieres around the time she's writing this thesis, which was in 1934. And so I was completely enraptured and in awe of who she was, what she re- the possibilities of life that she represented, and all of that started in the archive. Yeah, isn't that incredible? And please share also that she's who she is the wife of and some of the other imprints that she has left um, in the nation of Ghana. She was extremely proud to be the wife of Dr. W.B. Du Bois. She was, 
a lot of people credit her for extending his life because she took yes. such good care of him, often served as his surrogate um, at different meetings, including that of like the Pan-African Conference and all of those things. She would be, be a, a very worthy and capable surrogate for him. She helped to raise money for his federal trial. Um, she was just extraordinary. She was a, a, a mother figure to Malcolm X. Um, and so in the country of Ghana, she they lived there in the late 1950s, early 1960s at a time where this is a brand new nation founded in 1957. Kwame Nkrumah, the first president, also a HBCU graduate. He had graduated right. from Lincoln University and he had been in awe of W.B. Du Bois. And he understood that having a strong allegiance with Black Caribbean intelligentsia as well as Black American intelligentsia was foundational to helping this young nation get off the ground. And so they arrived in Accra, the capital, in a moment where Maya Angelou is there and so many others are there trying to see what is possible for Black people um, if we all sort of come together. Now, that had very complicated results, but Shirley Graham Du Bois was right in the thick of all of that, becoming the director of Ghana's Ghana Television, their first right. television network, right? Right. Um, and really pioneering the idea, an anti-colonial idea that programming should not just be in English, but it should be in people's local languages so that they can hear themselves and see themselves reflected on the national television channel of the country. And so she was truly a revolutionary in so many ways. And um, I... And her, I feel like when I go to Ghana, especially now that Ghana's in this 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 other moment of welcoming the diaspora into right. the country, I feel like I always hear echoes of what she was advocating for. She and W.B. Du Bois and others were advocating for in t- Ghana in 2023 as well. Mm, mm, absolutely. And just to situate this for our listeners and viewers, to just give them some perspective of the dynamicism of this woman that you're doing so much incredible research on. So she was referred to as the director, if you will, of Ghana's national television station. So basically, folks, she founded Ghana's equivalent to CNN. Exactly. Um, which is just <laughs> like... On top of like writing music and on top Mm -hmm. of, you know, being a diplomat and on top Mm -hmm. of, you know, really opening and expanding this notion of diasporian study. Right. Mm -hmm. She went ahead and founded Ghana's version of CNN. It's like, okay, I can do that too. Because (laughs) why not? On top of the Because why not? Right. The magazine that she worked on with Paul Robeson, his wife, Islanda Robeson, Freedom Waves. Like it was just really important to her to be among people, communicating ideas, continuing to show us what is possible. Why can't we? Um, and so I take a lot of inspiration from that. I think a lo- when we think about the early 20th century, we think about understandably the limitations of black life, the the, mm. the limitations of segregation, the opportunities that weren't available. And hers is certainly an exceptional life. It's not the life of most people at that time, black or white, but it is, there's something really uh, remarkable to me to see such a sprawling big life of a black woman born in the late 19th century. And she died in the 1970s who had a life that, you know, traversed continents and had 
all of this intrigue and all of these chapters and all of these phases, there's something really tremendously um, just inspirational about that to me, about her in particular. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, for I I remain surprised that in my mind, she remains a hidden figure. And why do you think that's so? Like, had it not been for your research and partnership with Tamika Nunley, who has also been a guest uh, for Toward Inclusive Excellence podcast, you know, had it not been for you all's partnership, you know, I I still feel like she would have remained hidden in the archives in plain sight, right? So why do you think that's the case? So part of that, I think, is because she was a communist and she okay. was a very... Mm-hmm proud and much like Paul Robeson, um, she was very clear about her politics on, on communism and that she was a member of the communist party. And so that gave her notoriety throughout her life. And I just feel like in, 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 in her life, she became very well known. Like, and, and so she was, famous in a moment and then I think after she passed away and this happens with women too when men when when powerful and famous men die often it is the wife who become the caretakers of their legacy and ensure that their names remain known right yes Um, that is not often done for women who are famous and influential and so she had two sons one who had passed away and another son David who did what he could to kind of keep her in our domain, but she didn't have um, cheerleaders and caretakers in the same way yes. that men often have. And so she withers into becoming only the wife of, just just the second wife of. And I don't diminish her role as wife at all because she was very proud of that. But, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. you lose the richness of her life, the expansiveness of her life. Um, when she herself becomes just this footnote to a great man. So I would say that too, in some ways, her proximity to such a looming influential figure of like W.B. Du Bois casts a shadow over her own life. I mean, W.B. Du Bois is one of the greatest sociologists that America has ever produced. And so surely people assume there can't be two luminaries in that household, but they absolutely were. When they moved to New York, he had no money because of everything that was going on with his federal cases. She was the she was the one with the resources that floated them, that bought their gorgeous home in Brooklyn and all of right. that. And she had just as many social connections and all of these things um, as he did. And so it's been a joy to work with people like Tamika Nunley, who's now at Cornell, with you, with A.G. Miller, to really... Um, restore her to her rightful place. Yes, no, and and thank you so much for your leadership in that because it's interesting, you know, and especially now in the modern era, and I don't want to veer too much into a critique of what people refer to as the manosphere and (laughs) the womanosphere (laughs) and the the womanosphere, right? But when we have these conversations about coupling, it always, to me, feels like there's this idea that one has to rise and the other has to be diminished for the prominent person's rise, right? That there can't be co-location and this idea of a power couple 
who is really committed to this justice work. And I think that that's also the contribution that you and Tamika and others give to our understanding of relationships, right? Yeah. In the ways in which, you know, this woman that has this amazing musical legacy, this amazing social justice Mm -hmm. legacy in partnership with a husband that has an amazing historical legacy, an amazing social justice legacy, that those two powers could come together to advance the cause, the diasporan cause is just, is a remarkable, yet I think still, you know, we still have opportunity to fulfill more gaps in that story. Yeah. Without a question. Yes. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. W.B. Du Bois knew exactly who he married. He knew she was a force. Totally. They had, he had known her, she had known him her entire life. Um, And so he was very clear who he was marrying and, we have no indication that he in any way ever tried to censure her, diminish her. Right. So why would we, right? That's what I'm left with. Right. No, absolutely. And that she, as you had earlier said, she was an adult learner who had children when she decided to go to school to pursue, you know, to be in a conservatory, mm-hmm. which in and of itself, Oberlin's conservatory, which in and of itself is a highly intensive educational experience, right? Like, it's yeah. not like, I'm just going to take a couple classes in music. <laughs> I'll take a couple classes in music that I'm interested in. Hang out. It's not how a conservatory is. Not at all. <laughs> not at all. It is, it is a demanding, rigorous course of study. And she stayed, and, you know, the title of her biography by Gerald Horn is Race Woman, and she truly was that. She stayed because at Oberlin and did a master's degree in history precisely because she felt that Black people, the race of Black people needed a trained musicologist. And so she was always thinking about how her work, what she was doing, poured black back into Black community and Black people. That is the through line in her life. And that is also why I think she and W.B. Du Bois were so well aligned because mm-hmm. they made choices and wrote things and created things that affirm that fundamental belief and what she calls the potentialities of the Negro. Like she, she holds yeah. that sacred to her for herself as he did as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. This has been such a great conversation. I had talked to you for days, but <laughs> I know, last right? we, we don't have days, right? right, right so right. <laughs> not yet. Um, so I am really interested and I know I can imagine that, our viewers and listeners are as well, Federa. What's on the horizon with you for your research? What interesting, pro- I know one, but what interesting projects are you working on? So the main project is wrapping up my book, I'll Make Me a World, which is the book looking at um, HBCU musical legacy. So I'm excited about that. And everything that I'm doing now is in some ways, shape or form, an extension of that. And so I've been really fortunate to work with the great mezzo-soprano Denise Graves and her uh, foundation, the Denise Graves Foundation, where she has started a program called Shared Voices that matches conservatory singers with HBCU singers because each of them have knowledges that should be shared between them. Um, And so it's been very fulfilling to this was we're finishing up the inaugural year of that program so it's been very fulfilling to take this research that i've done and been writing about and thinking about and finding ways to make it actionable
actionable. And so um, I'm really, you know, with the book, I'm really just advocating for like a subfield of HBCU music studies. And so that's where both the bulk of my energy is going. And when I'm not doing that, I'm gardening and just trying to catch my breath. Absolutely. Hobbies matter. You know, that's a whole other discussion, you know, around self-care and everything else is, you know, we got to also situate that with all of the amazing work that you're involved in. I'm glad that you're finding um, continuous time to do gardening too. That's really wonderful. Yes. Federa, thank you so much. This was such a great conversation. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. You know, anything you ask me to do, I'll figure it out. Well, I appreciate you because I, I literally know that you're you're globe trotting and involved in so many wonderful projects. So we appreciate you prioritizing us. Thank you so much. Indeed. Thanks for listening to our interview with Dr. Federa Hadley. Sign up to receive our newsletter follow us on social media, and subscribe to our podcasts that are available on most podcasting platforms. Be well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.